The Jews, being monotheists, had had the hardest time culturally assimilating within first the Hellenistic world after the conquests of Alexander the Great, integrating into the Roman Empire. The main messianic Jew of the first century and a half of the Common Era was a militant, nationalist, sectarian, who believed in an earthly messiah who would come liberate them in a military sense from the Roman Empire. They want to kick Romans out so they could be culturally independent. This is the era of Plutarch and Suetonius, biography writers, and the Gospels come out at this time. Highly sophisticated Greek documents that are combining Greek philosophy, Greek religion, with Hebrew literature and Hebrew prophecy. Flavians claim to be the Jewish Messiah. We right. know the Flavians use the Jewish religion for their political propaganda. Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And returning is a special guest, one of the originals from one of my back when I first started doing this thing a couple months ago. Uh, one of my first guests, James Valiant, author of Creating Christ. And uh, I'm glad to have you back on because I want to get back into some of your theories about. Roman elitists being involved in the writing of the Gospels. So before, if anyone doesn't know anything about that, why don't you give a little rundown of your book and sort of what this theory is? Well, the basic theory of Roman providence uh, starts with, I think, some very general observations about history. Um, and ones that normally people don't put together in their head in um I think a way that makes it understandable. They, they're taught sort of separate certain things in their head. Well, there was a great war between the Jews and the Roman Empire. In fact, multiple great wars uh, about 2000 years ago. Between 66 and 71, 73, there was a great revolt. It, it, the contemporary Joseph uh, historian Josephus tells us, he may be exaggerating, but he tells us that the war may have cost up to a million lives and that was the war that reduced the temple, the Jewish temple, the second temple, which had just been elaborately uh, expanded by Herod the Great. Um, it, it reduced it to the Wailing Wall that it is today. It was a cataclysmic war, a war of cultures, a war almost of civilizations. And that wasn't the last one. There'd be more violence and a second revolt in the second century. Uh, and the, at the time, the motivation for this war was religion, was, we're told by both pagan and Jewish writers at this time, the primary motivation for this war were the messianic prophecies found in Hebrew literature. The Jews, being monotheists, had had the hardest time culturally assimilating within first the Hellenistic world after the conquests of Alexander the Great, and then when the Roman Empire expanded and sort of expanded right on over them, uh, they had a hard time integrating into the Roman Empire. And uh, the main messianic Jew of the first, say, century, century and a half of the Common Era was a militant, nationalist, 
sectarian who believed in an earthly Messiah who would come liberate them in a military sense from the Roman Empire. So most of your Jewish messianics of the first century are hardcore Torah Orthodox, nationalist, militant, messianic, apocalyptic, and that's this religious motivation that's behind the war. They want to kick Romans out so they could be culturally independent, rule themselves uh, without any foreign interference, uh, which they regarded as corrupt. They also had this belief that they were God's special chosen people, and they had these prophecies that a Messiah, in times of crisis, if they were true to God, would be sent to them and cause them to have earthly victory here on earth. That was the messianic idea of most first century Jewish messianics. In the New Testament, by contrast, what we have is something very different. While it is intensely messianic, while it is clearly hearkening back to these Hebrew prophecies of a Messiah, it's sort of turning Jewish messianism on its head right there and then. It is Torah critical. You can eat with foreigners. You don't have to eat kosher. Circumcision, oh, who cares about that? Strict Sabbath observance, no big deal. So every, everything that makes Judaism sort of distinctive, Christianity rejects uh, from its earliest literature in Paul. Uh, more than that, it's for peace. Turn the other cheek, love your enemy, submit to the evildoer. Uh, in Romans 13, Paul couldn't be more explicit. Rebellion isn't just a bad idea. It's a sin. Pay, not paying your taxes isn't just getting along with Rome. It's a sin. Is it possible that there could have been an actual natural growth of Christianity, not Pauline? Maybe they were Orthodox. Maybe they were like like the, the Evenites, for example. Maybe there was a group that followed James, the brother. Do you think that's? Do you think there's that that could have happened? Oh, oh. When we get into the particulars here, for example, uh, historical Christ or not, I think it's important that we separate out the issue of whether or not there was a historical Jesus from this. In creating Christ, we don't take a stand on whether or not there was a historical Jesus. We do believe, and this is directly on the point I was just talking about, that uh, uh, if there was a historical Jesus, that he has basically been turned on his head been turned inside out into the very opposite of what he really was in history, uh, into this mythologized being who advocates peace, is Torah critical. It's quite obvious, though, that what we have in the New Testament is a criticism, a critical reaction to the Jewish rebels. It is non-militant. It is for peace. It's non-sectarian nationalistic. It's internationalistic. Everyone can be a Christian, Greek, Jew, it doesn't matter. It's open to everybody. It sort of breaks the ethnic uh, bonds, in effect, of the covenant, uh, as well as criticizing Torah. So in being uh, Torah, Torah critical, in being anti-nationalist, I mean, it destroys the idea of Jewish exceptionalism, in effect. Um, Non-militant. It's clearly a critical response to the first century Jewish messianics. All right. And it, there's no question. Now, who? Could it have happened naturally? Could it have happened naturally? Well, I have always been impressed at the nature of the New Testament. It is a complex thing. Absolutely. Um, it has got a lot of moving parts. 
whoever wrote the Gospels, for example, was mining Hebrew literature in detail, sometimes turning it on its head, right. selecting sometimes whether to go with the Greek translation or the Hebrew translation, and in either case, sometimes messing with the original meaning, messing with the original meaning to make its own point. So whoever put the Gospels together, for example, had to be highly literate mm -hmm. and had to have a very sophisticated uh, approach. Uh, more than that, there is a lot of Hellenistic philosophy to be found in the New Testament, which is sort of paradoxical given its messianic nature. It's our messianic rebel nationalists who are most resisting foreign influence. Wow. And so this is much more akin to, say, Philo of Alexandria, who was a, a Jewish, a pro-Roman work, his whole family was working for the Romans, but he was deep, he was working in Alexandria, Egypt, and he was integrating Greek philosophy with Jewish thought right. um, in the 30s and 40s of the, of the common era, uh, just after the alleged time of Jesus' death. But the New Testament is deep into this kind of a Philonic Hellenism. It's Platonic, it's Stoic. Um, there are scholars who pointed out that there are features of uh, Christianity that more resemble a pagan mystery cult than they do anything in the history of Judaism. There's a man God, a man God, and in strict monotheism, now they had messiahs before in Hebrew history, lots of messiahs, Joshua, David, the Maccabees, uh, any, anyone who was a successful leader of the Jews was considered messianic, but Jewish monotheism precluded him being a God. Right. Paganism was very accustomed to man-gods, and in fact, suffering man-gods with apotheoses and all that. And uh, so what we have in Christianity appears to be a syncretism, a collision, a fusion, a mixture of cultural elements uh, that make it a very sophisticated thing. Whoever wrote the New Testament was not an illiterate schmo. No way. Whoever wrote any piece of the New Testament is obviously an we're talking the first and second centuries AD. Not a lot of people were literate, much less with the level of education that we're talking about here. Scholars have determined that uh, the New Testament was basically written in a, the decade or two before the first Jewish war broke out and say the time of the second Jewish war or a little thereafter. So it is. it appears to me that it's no mere coincidence that Christianity, this new religion of peace, and all inclusion was built on Jewish messianism just exactly at the same moment in history as this messianic war of militant nationalist Torah Orthodox Jewish men. The, the timing cannot be a mere coincidence. More than that, as I've observed here, the New Testament is a critical reaction to the rebels. And then and the birth, you got his birth being exactly 70 years before the temple falls, almost like it was placed there. Because if you go to Daniel, Daniel 9 says, Gabriel in the 70 weeks, it was first the Darius, son of Ahasura, and the race of the Medes, reigned over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, tried to understand the scriptures, the counting of the years of which the Lord spoke to prophet Jeremiah. For the ruins of Jerusalem, 70 years must be fulfilled. Now you got, so now you look at that, right? Now we know... We know that Daniel's important for messianic literature. Everyone knows that. Christians will say that. Jews will say that. Anyone will say that. So the fact that you get a character who's the Messiah, who was born, supposed to be the year one, obviously, they're changing the calendars because of him, but it happens to be exactly 70 years before 
the temple fall. We just read the temple will fall in 70 years. And his crucifixion is around 30, exactly 40 years, if we say 30. And of course, the estimates can, can differ on this. Right. But going by traditional, I mean, if we go by Matthew's uh, nativity, uh, it would place uh, uh, Jesus's uh, birth before the year or at or before 4 BC, which is Herod the Great's death. Well, the only reason why we do that is because of scholarship, not because of anything the Gospels give us. Oh, this is true. The Gospels want his birth to be on zero. They do. Yeah. But they, they, they obviously they, they messed that up. That calculation so was made. to fix that? That the calculation of when year one would be, you know, the Romans, of course, calculated it from the founding of Rome centuries before this. So, but the right, so the Christians decide to change this later on. Uh, a scholar's doing his math, and year one becomes the year one based on this scholar's math. And uh, if he'd been a little attentive to the nativity stories in Matthew, as scholars are, or the nativity story in Luke, as scholars are, they would get dates more like. 4 BC or just before, or 6 AD or just after, uh, because that's the times that Luke and uh, Matthew tend to put this. But you're right, a traditional dating has him at least about 70 years and his execution about 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Both of those are prophetically significant, by the way, 40 and 70. Which, if you're a mythicist, you love that because you're like, see, look, they have to place him there. But if even if at a even if from a just a, a perspective like Roman providence, for example, you're you're trying to you don't care when the literal Jesus lived or who he was or what his real or what his real philosophy was. He could have been a zealot for all you know. All you care about is mixed, is playing the numbers, getting Daniel correct. Okay, the, the the temple fell here, so let's put him over here. That's all you're trying to do. Well, Daniel did give to some people at the time, and our Jewish rebels, uh, primary among them, give them a timing for this glorious advent uh, for messianic for the Messiah's arrival. And so there is there were people mining, you know, Daniel for information, and uh, it was believed that this was the time uh, by uh, messianic Jews of the period. Now, to fit it into those dates. Uh, it, it would be something they could have done at a later date, even because uh, we don't really know, even if there was a historical Jesus executed by Pilate, do we know when he was born? Do we know the exact time of his, uh, exactly? Could have we're, been born in 10 BC. We're, we're, given, we're given very vague clues as to the, these things. The fact that tradition could put them in this 70 and 40 year prophetic thing could be a later sort of fitting into the mold. Right. Now, stepping back, stepping back just a sec, it just seems to me that since the New Testament came into being as an obvious critical reaction to the Jewish rebels at, and at the time of the Jewish war, highly sophisticated Greek documents that are combining uh, Greek philosophy, Greek religion with Hebrew literature and Hebrew prophecy in a very sophisticated way departing yeah. from traditional Judaism in such dramatic ways as to have a man-god whose blood we consume, uh, as to have uh, is to set aside uh, the Mosaic law in so many important respects, for example, and yeah. critically to be yeah. for peace and internationalism and to be written in such a sophisticated way, obviously w- points to Jewish elites working for the Roman government, uh, pro-Roman Jewish elites who are working closely with Romans are have to be our leading suspect. 
These have to be highly educated, wealthy uh, Jews who want to get along with the Roman government. Well, um, we, do know, we do know that Philo's son, is it his son or is it his nephew. daughter? Philo's nephew marries the, the daughter of Agrippa or is it? What is Mary's the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. So here you got an example. I don't care what happens. He <laughs> lost his bloodline after that. All we know is this. The prime example of Platonic Judaism is Philo. Most of his works, I don't say all of them, but a lot of his works get passed down to us. They talk about the Trinity. They talk about the, uh, the aspect of, of allegorizing the Old Testament. They talk about all these logos concepts. This is he if he, this guy's marrying into the most elite family in the world. The fact that that happens should be a red flag. Now you know that his teachings, if his family adopts his own philosophy, you know that's going to spread into the Roman Empire, into the Roman Imperial cult. And the, and and here's the here's the kicker that I should have mentioned in the beginning. These are the Pontifus Maximuses and the censors and the, the high priests. The, 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 in, the Roman, in the Roman Empire, they didn't have like a pope and an emperor like they did later on. The emperor was the pope. They were <laughs> well, the, class. The, the pope would take in time, not until much later, of course. The pope would but take the in time. Pontifus title. Maximus was still there. The, yes. right, now, right now, the Pope is Pontifus Maximus. That title still exists. The Pope is the Pontifex Maximus of and Rome. Pontifus Maximus at that time was Julius Caesar, Augustus. That's Adrian, right. All after, after Augustus, all the emperors held the yeah. title Pontifus Maximus until Christianity, and, in which case the Bishop of Rome at some point got it. Yeah. And then you put, and then you factor in one big, huge milestone for pro, Roman provenance that I think it's ignored. Is the only mention of a Paul that matches the Paul of the epistles and and Luke is this Paul, or they call him Saul, who is the kinsman of who? There, above Her- he's a Herodian kinsman. Of course, Saul right. and is a Herodian kinsman, and in Romans we have some indication that uh, Paul is uh, his letter to the Romans that Paul was uh, related to the Herods. Um, you know, there are details, there are so many, everything. there are so many, Neil, there are so many details that if you pull the, the, the string on that are going to be uh, valuable pieces, you can look at it from any, just about any angle that you want. You can look at it from the text, from a political standpoint. You can look at the way the te- the, re- the religions are being altered at that moment. You can look at the, the number of personality connections are absolutely astonishing. Um, yeah. uh, now, to really understand Roman providence, though, I think as you're in a general way, as you're walking in the door, it's clear that the New Testament which was composed in effect at, at the time of these two Jewish wars in Greek too, and this is really in important. Greek. There's no Hebrew Gospels. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, is, it was obviously kind of addressed. Yeah, this is right. a group of Jews. There should be at least a couple, maybe one or two. None of them. They're all Greek, and they're all written in a style of the Romans. So uh, the reason why I'm saying the only reason why I know this is because um, Dr. Dennis McDonald points out that the style, the prose, the verse, the 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 way it's written styles itself from. What what the elite what the elite students 
of the Roman Empire are taught in schools back then. They're taught Homer, to copy for example, them. Greek literature was used to teach Roman aristocratic kids their lessons. Prime it's example. A main pedagogical tool. Prime example. Both MacDonald uh, and, uh, say, uh, 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 Robin uh, uh, Faith Walsh. Yes. These scholars uh, are coming to the conclusion. You don't have to agree with everything they say, but right. it's clear that their basic uh, uh, conclusion is correct. Right. We are looking at people, f whoever wrote these Gospels, are familiar with contemporary uh, uh, Greco-Roman genre. Let me give an example. This is, a, this is the era of Plutarch and Suetonius, yeah, yeah, yeah. great biography writers, and the Gospels come out at this time. Oh, I'm going to circle uh, back to Plutarch in a second. This sure. is a big, but I sure. want to show people who, who are offended any doubt of what we're saying. They think this is all Hebrew literature, just written in Greek. Well, look at the anointing of at Bethany of Jesus's feet by the woman. And when she's pouring out the, the oil on him and Judas is getting pissed off and saying, this should be used for the poor. What are you doing? Why are you wasting all this oil on his feet? And then Jesus goes, Oh, you know, this is, this is a good thing that she has done in. If we go to the anointing of Odysseus by an old woman, she's doing the same thing. She's anointing his feet people are getting it's one, the same it's, look it's one, can, like one can argue one could one could quibble one can quibble up one side and down the other with the scholars who find uh parallels in specific literature you know one can quibble about any but if he's let's put it this way if they're right about even the thrust of it if if there's anything to be found and for example, there the examples that I use that I think are really, really, really hard to get around are, for example, these Dionysian cults. Of mm -hmm. course, they're drinking the blood of their god, yeah. which is wine itself. He's the god of the vine. He's the god it's of wine. Big You're, no no in Judaism. You don't big no no in Judaism. It says it. It says it in uh, Deuteronomy. It says it in Ezekiel. It says it in Psalms. Psalm says, "No man, no son." Shall do so, so, so pay ransom for the sons of the father, nor the father for the son. No man can pay sins for anyone else. Period. Right. If you want to do, if you want to do atone for sins, you do it on the pat. You do it on uh, Yom Kippur, or you do it on the Passover for the Passover lamb. And only a priest can do it. And you can only slaughter certain animals that are from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. If you go anywhere else, you're doing it's an abomination. Period. So the, the, way, the, way we, the way we ask God for forgiveness and atonement for our sins is specified in Torah. Specified. The high priest enters the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur on his knees, and he alone can invoke the name of Jehovah and ask the, for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. You, Jesus goes around in the Gospels, forgiven sins, forgiven sins, forgiven sins. Yeah. And people say, what are you, God? Count dare you forgive sins, yeah. dude. Right. And, and you can't go through a page in Psalms without running into... Whoever does not keep my commandments or whoever keeps my commandments, it's all about keeping the commandments. Period. Keeping the commandments. And Jesus has to bend over backwards saying, I'm not, I'm fulfilling the law. Not one jot and tittle, dot, dot, dot. Even as he's saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Even as Jesus is saying, it's not what you put into your mouth that's unpure, but what comes out of your body that defiles. So, so Jesus is knocking kosher diet. Jesus is knocking Sabbath observance. Jesus is, get this. He's praising the, the the faith of a centurion above that of any contemporary Jew. It's crazy. There is so much evidence of 
let me put it this way. In those days, there's no separation between politics and religion. The Roman Empire regarded itself as protected by the gods as a sacred institution. Right. The Jewish people were a Jewish people because of their religious coherence, and their religion was sort of built around the fact that they were God's chosen people. Right. Ethnicity, politics, all of that is carefully tied to religion in those days. <clears throat> One of the genius elements of the Roman Empire is that they were religious compared comparatively. Obviously, they don't have uh, freedom of religion like in America today, but they had official religion, state gods. But on the other hand, they were an incredibly, for the time, tolerant uh, people. The reason why the Roman Empire lasted so long is not because they squashed every culture they came along and said you had to join us. They absorbed those cultures. They absorbed Greek ideas and religion. They absorbed Egyptian ideas and religion. Think you can the find the religion. Roman find imperial cult. The word imperial is there for a reason. It's a it's imperial. The cult is imperial. In, in the Romans used religion politically. Right. The Romans used religion politically. They're popular, but you know something. Is it really so far for, for hard for us to imagine the sincerity of it? I mean, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, the they if if people had been a little more uh, religious, <laughs> I, I think they might have deified him and right. built a temple to John F. Kennedy. Let's uh, imagine two thousand years ago in a more mystical, primitive environment. We're told that when Julius Caesar was assassinated, that the people themselves built a makeshift altar. Yeah. before the Senate declared him a god and had the uh, built an official temple right over, they had to clear the makeshift altar that the people themselves, he was so beloved by the people that he was worshipped as a god. The Romans and used that politically. Let's, let's let's talk about this for a second because this is, really, this is really big, what happened with Julius Caesar. He gets killed by the conspirators, right? The conspirators try to set up this new government to try to bring back the republic. But the people, they love the guy. Not only that, in his will, he gives all this money to Roman soldiers. They said it was equivalent today of like millions, of like $100 million. And every citizen. Being given to soldiers and citizens. So now they're getting all this wealth from his death. He adopts Octavian. Octavian comes the new Caesar. It's almost like he's avenging himself from heaven. Because now the reason why I say heaven, not the grave, he was... He was, um, what do you call it when you burn the person, uh, cremated? He was cremated. That's the way Romans did it. Yeah. Yes. And when he was cremated, they were saying that his remains would go up into the comet Venus, where he sat on the throne. We have, of, we have pagan Roman poets like Ovid who actually Ovid. describe Scribes. the apotheosis of, uh, <laughs> exactly, of Augustus. So you right. sorted my size for me. Thank you. Sorted my, cited my source for me. Thank you. Um, but Ovid talks about, yeah, the, 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 the great poets that have put their attention to this, like Virgil. He ascends into heaven, right? Right. Octavian and the Roman people and the, and the like Lepidus, uh, Mark Antony, they go and kill every single one of his conspirators one by one for the next 10 years. Not yeah. Next couple of years. So he avenges himself from the, his death, reinstalls the Caesar empire. It gets all the power goes to Augustus. Even even after that, uh, Mark Antony and Lepidus both fall off, and it's just Augustus, the sole, basically, sole. Once, once he bumps off his rivals, <laughs> they name him Augustus. And then what happens? The Roman imperial cult 
becomes the Caesar worshiping uh, religion. And they had these coins being spread across the whole Roman Empire. And what does it say on those coins? Son of God. And what do they call the what do they call that uh, time period? The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So you have this peace peace on Earth, Pax Orbis Terrarum. Yes. And you have all kinds of and not only that, goodwill toward men. Things like uh, Harmonia, Concordia, Clementia, which means mercy, pity, forgiveness. So you've got Clementia, Harmonia, Concordia, Pax Orbis Terrarum, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, is when Luke is writing, that's what's on Roman coins jiggling in people's pockets. That's Roman propaganda talk. Right. Right? It's not rebel talk either, is it? Right. No, it ain't rebel talk. What it is, is a critical reaction to these rebels coming from very sophisticated pens. And if I'm not mistaken, if you look at the the comparison between Julius Caesar being stabbed to death, the last person to stab him was a long, his name is Longinus, I think? Cassius. Cassius Longinus. Cassius Longinus. Longinus who stabs uh, Jesus on the, (laughs) the the parallels that Caesar. The parallels between Julius Caesar and Jesus have been pointed out by uh, Francesco Carota, of course, in his book, uh, 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 Jesus Was Christ, I think is the title. And it is a fascinating book. <laughs> he misses the Flavian connection altogether, but he does make enough parallels. That's what I'm saying. <clears throat> I, would, I wouldn't go as far as to say that Julius Caesar is the Christ that they're writing about, but I will say they're probably... It's probably like whoever's writing this is probably adopting bits and pieces of the Julius Caesar plus other figures like Alexander the Great. Maybe maybe they're adding in some Augustus stuff. Maybe later on, when you get past the war, Flavians. Well, now, we know that the Flavians. What's interesting is, for example, you know, the Julio Claudians, everyone's familiar, well, many people, maybe not your whole audience, familiar with the, perhaps the greatest work of Latin poetry, Virgil's Aeneid. It was composed during the reign of Augustus to glorify Augustus, but it uses Greek literature modeled on the Odyssey. It tells the story of a hero from the Trojan War who right. flees from, just like Odysseus, only this guy's a Trojan prince who flees to Italy and found the, the, the Latin cult, uh, colony that would become the Romans. And, and he's and the ancestor of the Julians, and he's the son of Venus. And right. so the so Julians are looking at the gods. He's an amalgamation of, of Julius Caesar, of Augustus, of the Julian-Claudian dynasty. Just like the gospel writers could be doing is they could be making this Christ into an amalgamated character of many figures into one, not just Julius well, Caesar. Well, just as just as the Julians used Greek religion to legitimize their own, we're descended from gods, we're descended from heroes, and Virgil and his Aeneid is doing that, sort of glorifying the ancestors of the Julian emperors who claim to be descendants from this Aeneas guy. And he's a Trojan prince, and he's the son of the goddess Venus. So uh, he is, Julius Caesar claimed to be descent of divine descent. And a comet was seen as he's dying, indicating that his, the apotheosis of his soul, you see, into heaven, he becomes a god. Interestingly about what I pause on Julius Caesar about is really interesting. He was very famous for forgiving his enemies. He pardoned, uh, after the first battle that he had with Pompey the Great, his rival, he pardoned many of the people who were fighting against him, people like Brutus and Cassius, uh, who would go on to be his assassins. 
And so the very people that he had mercy for, and not like that gave them prominent uh, political roles, they would go on as senators to betray him and stab him. Right. So he was a martyr to his mercy. He died, in effect, as a martyr for mercy. So Clementia... There's a lot of parallels between the whole Judas and... He was betrayed. Yeah. Exactly. And, he, you know, and Francesca Carota makes all kinds of very interesting points about the iconography of Christianity, where the Christian cult was and where the imperial cult was. There's a tremendous overlap. Uh, Carota makes all kinds of other parallels. Julius Caesar descends from Gaul, crosses the Rubicon, has a triumphal entry into Rome, but is killed by a Senate for claiming to be a king or fearing that he'd be a king. Well, Jesus descends from Galilee, crosses the Jordan River, has a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, is killed by a Sanhedrin, same word for Senate, because right, it is. I, he claims to be a king. So uh, the parallels uh, there are interesting uh, and could create a typos, sort of a type for the imperial cult. What's interesting about the Flavians who come next is because they're the, the their claim to fame is that they're the generals who defeat the Jews in the first Jewish war. Well, Nero and the Julio-Claudians are still in power. Vespasian gets appointed general over there to take care of the Jewish problem. And while the Jewish war is going on, Nero commits suicide because of a coup uh, against him. So then now there's a civil war. And because he's got a good chunk of the Roman army, Vespasian wins that civil war and becomes the next emperor. And so interesting about that, you know what's interesting about that is Galba takes, Galba is like the elder of the, of like you know behind Nero when that time of Nero dies, Galba was like pushed in there. Like you're you're obviously Caesar now. Like you're the only you're you you're, you have the most like uh you have the most what do you call it a seniority out of all of us. He but, was a patrician senator who had been close to the Claudians. Yeah, yes, and here's the thing. So he's not really seen as like doing anything wrong, and he gets assassinated. The next two emperors, um, Otho and Vitellius, are sort of like beasts. Like sort of like wicked evil beast and i almost wonder if this is what they were they're uh allegorizing in revelation is these two beasts the two beasts like in revelation now here's why i say that i want to hear what you think about this this is my theory this is my own personal wacky theory okay revelation 12 talks about the woman clothed with the sun with 10 stars on her head a lot of early interpreters interpret this as venus as being the goddess venus the julia claudian dynasty is the, the bloodline of venus right so I think the writer of Revelation, whoever's writing this, is giving a nod to the Julio. This woman with clover the feet, with giving baby labor pains. This is giving birth to the Caesar, the Julio Claudian dynasty. Then I think the abomination happens. The the child, I think he gets killed or something like that. But anyways, they talk about two beasts coming, and they talk about the final Michael, the great prince, the savior, to have the war in heaven, which is the war in Rome. Those two beasts get defeated, and then you have the the second coming of Christ, which could which possibly <laughs> the return of Caesar, but in this case it's Vespasian, not Julius Caesar, Vespasian and Titus, the father and son. Well, the the numbers that were given of the beast six 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 in Gematria suggests Nero. Nero, and the uh, I it. It doesn't. This it's the complications of the story don't end there, because Domitian, the the third and last of the Flavians, was regarded as a new Nero. Right. And so, and he was actually married to a lady who was descended of the Julians, 
his wife, Domitia, was actually a, a descendant of Augustus, literally. Wow. So the, the, the story there could be very, very complex indeed. And then to, what? To, their to son dies. Yeah, but then to kick it all off. Uh, but this is kicker, speculation. Kicker is this, yeah. The, yes. Not the kicker is this, you get a seven-year tribulation, right? Right. Let's look at the war, the Jewish-Roman war. The war starts in 66 AD. It ends in and ends at the fall of Masada at the end of 73, almost 74 AD. That is arguably seven years right there. I mean, you can claim months, tribulation. Months. Let's say it's in the summer of 66 and the summer of 63. That's seven years right there. Well, I mean, far less speculative. The reason why it's even more, the reason why it's more yeah. intriguing is because you got the fall of Jerusalem happening three and a half years after the war, then the fall of Masada. Three and a half years after that, after those that. are two three and a half tribulations that it talks about in Revelation. It matches up. That's fascinating. That's yeah. fascinating. I I, I can't count on any of those. I want you to look at that. You're right. On any of those, I don't want to come down with a confident answer. Uh, however, however, what we do know is that the Flavians, because they were the conquerors of the Jews used that as their great claim to fame propagandistically. And what we have astonishingly is proof that the, these Roman emperors used the Jewish religion for their propagandistic purposes in a similar way, perhaps, to the way the Julians used Greek religion. And they, but the, the Flavians, we, we know, used various forms of uh, foreign religion to support their uh, divine claims. Vespasian performed healing miracles at the Serapeum in Alexandria. He put his image on the reverse side of images of the god Serapis. He was the new Serapis. That's he was, and so you see, he uh, more than that, the Jew, they, they also claim to be the messiahs. Now think about this. All no. these rebel leaders are claiming to be the messiah. But these early we have both Jewish, but we have both Jewish writers, Josephus and Ben Zakkai, who are claiming the Vespasian's the messiah. Right. And we have pagan, and get this, when the pagan writers, Tacitus and Suetonius, tell us that Vespasian and Titus were the real object, the Jewish messiahs, they don't say claim to be, may have been. No, they were. They say, Tacitus says that he was healing the blind and the sick in the temple of Serapis. Right. And then and he says healing that miracles look exactly like certain healing miracles Jesus does in the Gospels. Let's go back a little bit. So the Talmud talks about a meeting between Johanan, the high priest John, and Vespasian, right before the Jerusalem falls, Yohanan has to sneak out of Jerusalem because the Sakari won't let him. The evil, sick, wicked Sakari, right? Sakari, uh, Iscariot. I think there's a connection there. Judas is. I think Judas is an is like a uh, an allegory of the Sakari. Anyways, here's what I think. Um, he sneaks out in the Talmud. It talks about Yohanan walking up to Vespasian and being like, "You are the king." For it is written, Isaiah 30. He starts giving all these verses to him. You are the chosen one. You're the king. And then Vespasian's like, why are you calling me king, son? He's like, I should kill you for that. Like, he was, like, pissed about it. But, like, the point is. The, well, get the that. That's got to be propaganda. Historians yeah. generally, it, we're, we're told Josephus had a prophetic dream in which after he's been captured after Jodapada, now Vespasian isn't, mind you, Nero's not even dead yet. Right. So Vespasian hasn't had even the thought that he'd be emperor. And we're told that these Jewish prisoners 
insisted prophetically that Vespasian would be emperor. Right. Now, that is very interesting. In other words, they are willing to cooperate with Flavian propaganda. Jewish leaders like Josephus and Ben Zakkai are perfectly willing, at, even though they are Jews and saying, I'm still a good Jew, I'm, they're willing to declare well, Vespasian to be the Messiah of prophecy. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because right after that meeting happens that I just talked about, they make a deal. Well, Vespasian tells Yohanan, listen, I'll make a deal with you. You tell me who you want me to not kill. Who do you want me to protect? You t so you give me a list, everyone else is getting stomped out and killed. That's the wrath of Vespasian saying, I'm going to rapture you. You're raptured, you're raptured, and you're raptured. Everyone else is going through hellfire right now. He sends his son Titus. In the That's city. an interesting way of looking at it. It is an interesting you know, way to look at it. The we're you know we're used to modern Judaism, which doesn't uh, believe in an afterlife, generally speaking, and uh, we're we are often told, well, look, there's no afterlife in Torah. It's only later prophets, say like Daniel and maybe Ezekiel, who mention resurrection of the dead. Nonetheless, Philo and Josephus make it plain that many, if not most, I mean, two of the three sects of Jews at the time believed in the resurrection of the dead. So, in terms of a final eschatological judgment of you know mankind. Okay, they may have all believed this, the Jewish rebels, and just like our uh, later Christians, but the uh, what the Jewish rebels are believing is a, a, an earthly messianic advent that'll happen. It will change the era. It will have metaphysical change. I mean, the world will change because of the coming of the Messiah, but we're not yet at the final end of the world, if you will, eschatology. That may have continued straight from our apocalyptic rebel Jews straight into Christianity. But in the meantime, for example, when Jesus in, at Mark 13 predicts the destruction of the temple, and the destruction of Jerusalem, he predicts that at that time there will be a glorious coming of the Son of Man, hearkening back to Daniel. Right. Now, uh, it, it could be read as a total proof text for the Flavian claims, couldn't right. it? And right. On, uh, you know, I want to talk about Flavius real quick. Were you done? Sorry, go ahead. Finish. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, just uh, the point, though, uh, being that we know that the Flavians used the Jewish religion right. propagandistically. Oh, yeah. And that's what I want to talk about. Perfect. It is built in. It is built in so that when we have sophisticated literature like we do in the New Testament. Yeah. Could only have been written by highly educated elites right. with a distinctly pro-Roman politics yeah. and a critical reaction to the rebels. We're looking at um, a Roman, and we're looking at a Roman government that's perfectly willing to use Jewish religion for propagandistic purposes, which we know to be a fact. Josephus calls Rome heaven on earth, like he calls it the heaven. Um, but not only that, I think it's interesting that Vespasian, when he's in Samarita. Samaria, I think you call it. What is it? Samaria. I don't know why I said Samarita. Where the Samaritans live. Samaria. <laughs> according to Tacitus, he gives an offering to the Samaritan God. That's Yahweh. Right. Well, so yeah, right. Samaritans have their own funky beliefs, right? Still, but he does. know who the Samaritan God of, really is. Right. It's Yahweh. He's giving an offering to Yahweh. And then it's just that he starts healing the blind and sick there. That's He does it twice. He does it in Samaria. And he does it in Egypt. Where Serapis is. They get now, the reason why I bring this up, though, is yeah. because later on, the early Christian church, you see a lot of these church fathers' names are like Ben Serapia or Ben Dionysus. Oh. They all have names with Dionysus in them, Serapis in them. 
Some of them have like weird, like what, what's up with that? This we have like, evidence. We have some evidence in the second and third centuries of competition between the cults of, of uh, Serapis and Christianity, but the connections and relations are just very, very. Um, some of the popes' names are Serapis and Dionysus. Why would they? Why would they take? <laughs> why would they take pagan names if they're worshiping the one true God? What's really interesting is that's how really many Christians have Flavian names. For example, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, that's Flavius Clemens, Saint Clement of Alexandria, uh, Titus Flavius Clemens, uh, Saint Clement of Rome. Yeah, Josephus like is a, Tertullian. Josephus is a, is a gets adopted by the Flavians. He's Flavius. Constantine's number. He's well. What happens with Flavius. Flavius? Josephus has the name Flavius. Is that uh, just like in the American South, when slaves were given their freedom, they generally took the name, the surname of their owner, their right. previous owner. This was true in ancient Rome, too. Right. If you were a slave or a war captive and your master freed you, you would take out of gratitude the, the, the name of your master. So all the freed slaves of, say, the Emperor Claudius all have the name Claudius. But a lot of the historians like Fl uh, Arian, the one who wrote the story about Alexander the Great, he adopts the name Flavius. He's, his name's Arianus Flavius. And then you got Constantine and Eusebius. They're the ones who really transformed the church and made it Roman, really. They're both Flavians. Where is every the, Christian there's something emperor going on with that every, every Christian emperor of the West, until the fall of the Western Empire, with one exception, adopts the name Flavius. And we have no evidence that any of them were descended from Flavians it's or like Flavius Friedman. But here, and this is, and this is, I think there's, I think there's something that people miss when they talk about this, is that the Neoplatonic worldview tends to agree with the Pythagorean worldview, in the sense that they they think of like uh, transmigration of souls, not like like I literally am a reincarnation of someone else, but I think they think that you can be like your a bloodline can live on through other people. So I think by adopting names and Caesar and Flavius, they think this is some sort of like divine thing. That's what I think. Well, I think that there well, you can even see in Jewish literature at the time that they they had different views on the resurrection of the soul. For example, they ask, uh, there are people wondering if John the Baptist is Elijah come back. Right. That's not that's not a Jewish thing. That's just right? like, that's in the gospel. Jesus, are you John the Baptist? Are you what? What are you? You know, it's, it's as though these these old these figures from Hebrew literature could be resurrected somehow or reborn in our time. Right. Um, and that idea, I think, it can't be dismissed. Uh, they definitely. But also, uh, you know, Stoicism is very related. They had a metaphysics where logos order would send a soter a savior to bring order back when, when there's problem and so they had a saviorology if you will uh that's built in and yeah, stoicism being this is a this is a time as you can see you're pointing out that this is a time of enormous religious creativity the imperial cult being one of the really great examples of it the emergence of christianity being another great example of it and in both instances what we have are people worshiping a man as a god a man who'd walked around on earth in historical times, allegedly, and in recent times, and saying, no, that's a god. He is a divinity, a man-god. Again, something totally unprecedented in Jewish thought. But a divine demigod, sort of heroes who become gods after suffering on earth, were common throughout uh, Greek literature, for example, and throughout the religions of the, of the Near East. And now we've got in the imperial cult, an imperial cult, which is 
like a sponge absorbing all these foreign religions into the imperial cult. The Jewish Messiah is now part of the imperial cult of the Flavians, just as Greek religion had been incorporated into the imperial cult by Virgil. And just as Serapis is put on the other side and the miracles that Vespasian performs, Vespasian is now a Serapis. So all this was a time of religious syncretism too, where religions were fusing into one. Gods were being com compared and contrast and people were coming to the position that, well, you know, consider the history of that. Yeah. <laughs> when uh, you the Historia Augusta, which was written under the Hadrian, it's a, there's a letter to Servanus where the author says that the bishops of Christ, when they come to Rome, I'm sorry, the bishops of Serapis, when they come to Rome, are made to worship Christ, and then the Christ bishops are made to worship Serapis when they go to Egypt. And he's saying that there's some sort of like mix going on between the Serapis and the Christ worshipers. Also, in that I same text, for sure. that <laughs> text, when it talks about the, uh, El, what, what's his name? The Roman emperor Elagopolis, is that his name? How do you say his name? Yeah. Elagopolis. This wasn't under, written in the time of Hadrian, but actually much later. Elagopolis. Elagopolis says that he was trying to take the funds for uh, the Apollo temple and combine them and sort of make a slush fund for the Christians. So the Apollo and Christian funding was in one, like one big he was trying By to the time you get to the Severans and Elagabalus, you've got a whole dynasty of Roman emperors practically right. who are involved up to their waist in an Eastern foreign religion. They are priests of this Eastern foreign religion. The, the, the cultural adaptations of Rome, politically speaking, are many and numerous. And they are, as time wears on, even the Romans, the Romans were very tolerant of, they'd let you continue to worship whatever gods you were going to worship, so long as you paid homage, dipped your hat to the Roman state gods. Uh, Jews were given certain exemptions because they had strong rules against idol worship, and so they didn't have to do these prayers in the presence of these pagan idols. Um, they were exempted. Um, now, uh, in fact, all you'd really have to do is make a prayer uh, for the emperor, Curious. and that would probably satisfy uh, uh, the Roman government's needs. Uh, but there's no question that all these foreign religions are being absorbed and used by the Roman Empire. Rome is trying its best to tolerate and absorb. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons why it lasts so long. Foreigners yeah. could be absorbed into their political world. They could become citizens, senators. But as time wore on, Rome wanted to unify, culturally unify their empire under one religion. And so we have religions beginning like with Saul Invictus. Uh, there's the fad religion of Mithraism among the soldiers uh, that are very popular at the time. Christianity is really coming to the fore. And you can see that what's, what they're looking for is sort of one God to unite the different cultures. Ready for this? Here he goes. He enshrines Heliogobulus on the Palatine Hill next to the temple of the emperors and built a temple for him being eager to transfer to the temple both the emblem of the mother goddess and the fire of vesta where all the virgins are by the way the vestal virgins the palladium the sacred shields and all the objects sacred to the romans so that no god should be worshipped at rome except heliogobulus he used to say furthermore that the religion of the Jews and Samaritans 
and the rights of the Christians ought to be transferred there so that the priests of Heliogabalus might include the mysteries of every cult. Word for word, telling you what they were doing. This is the Roman mentality. Right. What they're trying to do is absorb, adapt, utilize foreign religions for their uh, political purposes. This has been going on since the start of the Roman Empire and all the way through. This imperial cult was creative. It was dynamic. It was absorbing various religious traditions. What we have with Christianity is precisely the kind of fusion of religions, a syncretism of religions that would result from Roman era educated elites, not hardcore Jewish messianics of the rebel type, not your Torah Orthodox Jews, even of the rabbinic sort that were developing after Yavne and Yohanan ben Zakkai. Do you want to know the name of the guy who wrote this? I'm sorry? Do you know the name of the guy who wrote this? Wrote what? What I just said? You ready no. for this? You ready for this? I just found, I just looked it up. Flavius Vabiscus. You're re reading from part of the Historia Augusta. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a late. That's a late. True. Yes. Flavius. Well, but understand, we should expect in general, like I, like I say, we should expect that generals, especially generals during great periods of war, will have an enormous number of people named after them because they will liberate an enormous number of captives. And so um, a great many, uh, in fact, a great many Jewish captives are going to have the name Flavius if they're getting along and going along with the Roman Empire. Right. Makes well, sense? This is third century, so it's not like it's, it's, it's late, but it's like this is when the merging is happening. Right. There so is a strange, there is a strange sort of reminiscence of the Flavians going on in the Constantine and Theodosian dynasties. Why are they adopting the name Flavius? They're not really Flavians. Um, there's no indication that they're even descendants of Flavian freedmen. Uh, uh, the, the idea is crazy that they should all be, I mean, there should be some reason why uh, Flavius is, it's not Julius or Aurelius, right? Antoninus. It's not uh, Claudius. It's not any of these other dynasty names they're adopting. It's the Flavians who claim to be the Jewish Messiah. Um, okay. <clears throat> if we are cornered with the idea that the New Testament could only have been written by highly educated elites with a pro-Roman politics, then it seems to me, and that the documents were written at about the same time as these great Jewish wars, I don't think we need to to be have a PhD to put the two and two together here. Right. What we're looking at, what we're looking at, and these Flavians, these Titus, the son of Vespasian, the guy who actually sacked Jerusalem, he had at his side during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD a nephew of Philo, the daughter of Herod Agrippa, Josephus the historian. This is crazy. He almost, Titus himself almost marries what is the daughter Josephus? of Agrippa I. What is Josephus that's right? How close, that's how close these Jewish elites are with the Roman emperors. Well, what is Josephus right about that event? What does he say happens? He says that in the sky, the heavens were at war. He's telling you that this event, the sacking of Jerusalem, is so important, right? So he's, so you got Josephus saying that, not only Josephus, Tacitus even says that, Tacitus is using Josephus, and he had, he also talks about people saw horses and chariots in the sky during the siege of Jerusalem. 
this is such a big deal. And it's written by the, the Roman historians and in the gospels that a war in heaven broke out. Well, when Jerusalem well, fell. Let's look at, let's look at uh, what's happening. The, the vision of Daniel is in the skies, right? Right. This glorious coming of the son of man. When, when uh, Josephus says that at the siege of Jerusalem, armies were seen battling in the skies, he's clearly invoking Daniel. Since Josephus also tells us that Vespasian, the Roman general who will become emperor, is the true Messiah, that is the he's saying that Vespasian is the fulfillment of Daniel. Wow. There's his he his for him the messianic fulfillment here with all this uh the bells and whistles. Vespasian is born in nine AD. So when Jesus says, so when Jesus does the same thing and says there's going to be a glorious coming of the Son of Man, and Mark 13 predicts the details of the fall of Jerusalem with perfect detail uh, overlap with Josephus, it could be, Mark 13 could in fact be specifically, and I think about it, it's ironic. The, the All these messianic claimants, these rebel leaders have all failed. The only one who would succeed, the only thing that would make this into a son of man advent, a la Daniel, a la Mark 13, would be a, the glorious coming of a Messiah, Vespasian. Right. There is no nationalist Jew who succeeds at this time. It's only Romans who succeed. And it's the Roman claim to being uh, the Messiah that's being fulfilled both in Mark 13, just as it is in Josephus's description of the fall of Jerusalem with armies in the clouds. And you know, what's oh. funny? you know what's funny is that Philo being a prime example of a Platonic, I wouldn't, I don't know about maybe pro, kind of pro-Roman Jew. Um, well, he was very anti-Caligula, but. Wait, 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 wait. About is, Augustus. Yeah. Let me, let me pull this up real quick. Go ahead. Okay. Say what you're going to say. Say what you're going to say. Uh, Philo comes from a family of Roman tax collectors. His family are oligarchs, and those guys are basically collecting the taxes from Jews for the Romans at Alexandria. Alexandria is a very rich port, and Philo's family are given very high positions by the Roman state, including the position, as I say, of collecting taxes, collecting the taxes from the Jews in, the, in Alexandria. The reason why Philo is sent to the embassy, uh, the Caligula embassy, along with the Greeks, who were, I mean, Greeks and Jews are in conflict in Alexandria. You're and this? Sure. And Philo is sent precisely because he is well, one of the pro-Roman Jews. That's what I'm saying. This is I'm going to prove to you now that he was pro because everyone likes to point to his his writing about Caligula and look how much he hated the Romans. Look how much he hated. The Romans. No, he just hated Caligula because listen to what he says about Augustus. He, tur he turns the tables now and he says this about Augustus. This is Philo. This is Philo in like 20 AD or something like that. This is Caesar who calmed the storms, which were raging in every direction, who healed the common diseases, which were afflicting both Greeks and barbarians, who descended from the south and from the east and ran on and penetrated as far as north and west in such a way as to fill the neighboring districts with waters and, and waters with unexpected miseries. This is he who did not only loosen, but utterly abolish the bonds in which the whole habitable world was previously bound down and weighed down. He's calling him a liberator and a one who calms the storms and heals the sick. He's a, he calms storms and heals people, and he's a universal savior. 
Yeah, he says he he loosens the bonds that were on all you the. Say, you, you, we say okay, he's anti Caligula. Well, a lot of Romans were anti Caligula. Yeah, exactly. Everyone so Caligula was taken were. out. Caligula was taken out by a coup among the Praetorian Guard, and uh, the Roman historian Suetonius thinks the guy was just a total loon. The Roman senator historian, the reason why we know Caligula is this maniac is because a second century Roman senator, Suetonius, tells us all the dirt. Ditto Nero. It's not as people say, well, you can't be critical of Nero and be pro-Roman. Wrong. The Plavians were the ones who were the ones who started uh, uh, throwing dirt on the reputation of Nero. It it was very Flavian era to criticize Nero, Nero, even though the Flavians had been helped by Nero in their own careers. Uh, Tacitus is anti-Nero. Uh, Suetonius is uh, anti-Nero. Um, but they all know. they all are universally pro-Augustus. In and fact, let's look at this. this too. Josephus is anti-Herod. He yeah. is a Jew, and he's and he's criticizing Herod the Great. Right. So what's interesting is that what you can't say you can't just simply line up villains and uh, you know uh, heroes that way. <clears throat> to Romans, there could be Roman villainous emperors. To Jews, there could be villainous Jewish kings. And the idea that uh, it's like in America, uh, people are either pro Democrat or pro Republican. They don't. That doesn't mean they hate America. It just means they don't like one party. That's all. That's exactly it. And you have to look at distinction. Those very distinctions are very operative at this time. There's all kinds of negative propaganda that the Flavians are throwing on on Caligula and Nero. Yeah, I mean to enhance their own reputations. You see, we're so yeah. much better than right. I just think it's amazing how. Augustus is portrayed by everybody. He's like this untouchable, perfect, nothing he could do, no wrong. He has the best press in the world. You don't, you don't, you don't. The better press, to... better even, at least Suetonius tells us a little dirt on Augustus' private yeah. life. Right. If yeah. you want to hear, if you want to hear unmitigated praise, I mean, go to Suetonius on Tacitus and Vespasian, even better. Sure, Vespasian was a little tight, and Titus, well, you know, he, he, he was kind of rough on his enemies before he became emperor. But boy, what a benevolent guy. He was just the coolest guy. He sold all his personal possessions to help the poor when crises happened. He loved people like a father. <clears throat> Listen to Pliny the Elder in his introduction to nat- his natural history published. He was a friend of Vespasian's. Vespasian is a god. How do we know Vespasian's a god? Because he loves us all and has this universal charity to all mankind. And he talks about Julius Caesar being deified as well in that same writings. So to tie it all together, you got you if you look at everything as a whole, not just the text, not just the New Testament, not just the Old Testament. But if you look at Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Elder, all these texts, Philo, what you're seeing is you're seeing is the Romans being interested in fulfilling the savior archetype that the Jews already brought out. They're interested in this. You can see that. You can see Vespasian is interested in this. Vespasian's being said by healing the sick and the blind. His son Titus sacks Jerusalem and there's a heaven, there's a war in heaven. All this stuff. Julius Caesar being deified, all this stuff happening in the and in, in within one century is such a big coincidence. If you think if you think that's what happened, or you can say this <laughs> is all progression and it all it's all leading into each other and it's all related. Look, if scholars are correct that um, if scholars are correct that Paul is the guy who came up with the Torah criticism stuff, right? 
he's arguing it in Galatians. His James and Kephas, he's confronting to the face on, on Torah orthodoxy. Scholars have generally come to the conclusion, at least many scholars have come to the conclusion, that Paul is the one. He stresses he gets it from his own revelation. He stresses he was different in this respect from others. He's not quoting Jesus anywhere on this. It's Paul who's coming up with the Torah criticism. What else is Paul doing here to Jewish messianic thought? Let me suggest that the New Testament in general is, is turning it on its head in important ways, whether it's Torah orthodoxy, peace with Rome, the nature of the Messiah, uh, all of these things are being uh, changed in Christianity. Christianity represents a major elbow in the road and the only of Judaism. And the only way to explain this sharp elbow, Judaism was becoming much more influenced by uh, Greco-Roman philosophy. Right. Naturally, that progression might be expected to produce, say, a philo. But when you run across this, New Testament literature, we're seeing something that's now pointed and political. Dionysian rites, Mithraic rites, Osiris rites. You're seeing all these mystery cult rites being absorbed into this. You're seeing the Caesar worshiping ideas, the Roman imperial cults. All this stuff is all being absorbed into this, what becomes the, 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 uh, the main big hit of the Eastern Roman Empire, of modern day Turkey modern day Greece, modern day Judea and Egypt. This is what you're seeing. And it's all coming together in the first century AD, second century AD. It's almost as though the rebels went off into the desert, became ultra monotheistic, ultra anti representing God or even the prophet to become Islam. It's almost <laughs> as though the pass, the That's pacifist so form yeah. became right the West and rabbinic Judaism sort of became a debating society, de-emphasizing Messiah altogether. Yeah, they were like, we should, that was a bad idea. Look what we look what we did. In order to get along recreated on that one. <laughs> well, in order to get along in diaspora after the Jewish wars, rabbinic Judaism de-emphasized uh, the political teeth of Messiah, uh, the political reality of Messiah, so that they could get along and go along and sort of became a debating society rather than a religion with political implications, as it clearly was when the Jewish wars were going on. And so what you've got here is a sort of a stratification of the Jewish uh, tradition. Now consider the passion narrative of Jesus, though. It is clear that what we're looking at is a allegorical effort to blame the Jews collectively for the death of Jesus. He's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested and convicted by the Sanhedrin for violating Mosaic law in a kangaroo court. They go to Pilate. Pilate in all four Gospels says point blank, he is innocent. Full stop. Jesus is innocent. And he says, I don't want to I don't want to crucify him. And they say, No, we really want you to. Pilate only gives in when a violent, angry mob starts shouting, apparently in unison, crucify him, crucify him. It doesn't take just once. Three times the crowd has to persuade Pilate. And Pilate, in a melodramatic, almost cartoon, says, Well, I wash my hands of this. Right. <laughs> We don't need Matthew's people to cry out, uh, his blood is on us and on our children, which the crowd does in Matthew's scene. It's clear from every every one of the versions of the Passion narrative that the Romans are being vigorously exonerated and the Jews are being uh, inculpated, blamed for the death of Jesus. What the hell is going on in all four Gospels that the very structure of the most important element of the story, 
the passion of Jesus, is itself an allegory for Roman innocence and Jewish guilt, written, mind you, probably just in the wake uh, of the Jewish war, um, the first Jewish yeah. war. It seems, to me, it seems to me that w the very bones that all four Gospels share, the, the structure, the substructure that all four Gospels share is itself a pro-Roman allegory. Yeah. And, and when we look at it that way. Successful and it's an effective way after, for, for afterwards, for this, for this text to, to, be, to still be being, you know, pushed on, you know, pushed after the temple falling. It's effective in the sense that the Jews that are scattered abroad in the diaspora are looking at this text and saying, the Messiah came, the Jews did the bad, did bad stuff. We should be, we should do better. We need to do better. We need to, we need to learn from our mistakes. Right. Right. So that's what it's doing later on, long-term wise. Right. Right. Long after, long after the Jewish, the Jewish uh, rebels have fought, failed, right? <laughs> long after uh, the Flavians are, are defunct, we've got the Gospel of John. We, we go so far as to spiritualize Jesus as to say, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this earth. Pre-existing logos. That's it. And my king, not only that, don't, don't expect an earthly kingdom from a Jewish Messiah. A total reversal of what Jewish Messiah had meant up to that point. But right. you see, it was already, it was, John is merely the climax of an increasingly uh, right. spiritualized conception of Messiah. Jesus is a particularly eloquent example of this. He's, he's not leading, yet he's the Messiah. He's not leading some war. He's not some political leader. He's saying to the disciples over and over again, you guys are missing it. In the kingdom of heaven, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You guys are getting it all wrong here. The, uh, the poor are the lucky ones. Right. Right? Uh, blessed are the poor. Uh, so what, he's, what he, he's saying is forget this earthly life, which, you know, if you think about it, you've just been conquered by the Romans. You've just been enslaved. I mean, think of the tens of thousands of Jews who are now Roman slaves. No less than four occasions in the New Testament are slaves admonished to obey their masters. Yeah. We're told repeatedly to, but Jesus himself says, pay your taxes, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Now, obviously that's probably not coming from a rebel. Render unto Caesar. Rebels are saying, no, screw Caesar. Rebels are saying, die, be a martyr for Jerusalem. That's what they would say. Get this. The Jesus Seminar, that group of scholars, you know, a, a few decades ago, who were trying to figure out what is uh, the authentic words of Jesus and what aren't, uh, they got a big committee of uh, biblical scholars together, critical scholars together, um, some of them pros, some of them, you know, just interested uh, uh, experts. And they uh, went through and they decided that about 85% of the thing quoted uh, from Jesus is the saying of Jesus could not plausibly or probably have been said by any historical Jesus. You know, it's like, uh, pick up your own cross and follow me. Before the crucifixion? Jesus is talking about the cross symbolically long before he's ever crucified. How would his followers have even understood what he was saying? Exactly. So there's all kinds of stuff like that in there. So what do they say are the things that get the highest credibility rating from the Jesus seminar? The things that most likely were probably said by a real historical Jesus. Well, guess what? It's stuff like render unto Caesar. Stuff like it's not what you put into your body that defiles, that's what comes out of your body. It's uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the stuff they regard as most credibly Jesus 
is the most Torah critical and pro-Roman stuff, anti-rebel stuff, anti-Torah stuff that you're going to find from the mouth of Jesus. Wow. So far from far from any of that, those sayings seem incredible to me. It seems to me that the distinctive, what sounds like distinctive Jesus to the critical scholars, sounds to me like um, distinctively coming from pro-Roman elites. Wow. Pay your taxes. Don't bother so so much with Torah details. Get along with other people. It's just, it sounds like what you would do from a Roman perspective, if you're like, these Jews are really a thorn in our leg right now. They keep revolting. There's there's two radical, they're like radical Muslims and they're like ISIS. We got to figure this out. We got we to well, figure out a way yeah. to get them to chill out a little bit. Well, exactly what you're describing is exactly the case that it was. Right. We have... Uh, for example, there were violent disturbances in Rome from Messianic Jews, according to Suetonius, in the reign of Claudius in the 40s, some uh, 16 years or 17 years before the Jewish war. All the Jews of Rome were expelled from Rome because of violent disturbances in Rome. Right. So, so this actually, is, just mentioned the, the conflict between Jews and Greeks in Alexandria. Right. We know that Jewish rebels were, were involved in arson in Antioch. So yep. what we're looking at is empire-wide, religiously motivated violence caused by Messianic Jews in the first century, throughout that, the first century. And that, that's, that's what it comes down to. And, um, and it required not merely, because Jews were 10 to 15% of the Jewish, of the Roman population. Yeah, yeah. I'm, African Americans today are about 12% of the American population. It would 10 be, like, 15%. It would be like if every black person was uh, a Jew. Back right. Then. Imagine if they all, you know, were like, like you know, they all revolted at once. In effect, in effect, the social deal. problem that America has, right, with racism, can be compared in effect Very to the Roman Empire because it was a problem of the similar magnitude. Yeah. Similar yeah. magnitude. Wow, that's a good way to put it. A way of looking at it and violence throughout the empire. It required, and not only that, Jews were converting people. We had uh, God-fearers, proselytes, Greeks and Egyptians, even Romans were finding the Jewish religion something, you know, want to toy with. It maybe uh, it became a fad among certain groups. Yeah. <laughs> so what we have to do is we have to have an ideological, propagandistic response, just right. as much as the military response. And the Romans were experts at prop using foreign religion for propagandistic purposes, as we've just been explaining in the imperial cult, for example. They did it with the Aeneid, they did it with Ovid, they do it with other, they do this all the time, the Hermetic texts, all that. So The Flavians claim to be the Jewish Messiah. We right. know the Flavians used the Jewish religion for their political propaganda. So, yeah. If I, and, like, look, all the stuff that we've mentioned in this, in this episode, you guys can all check it out and, and, and look at, test it out. Leave a comment. If you Please challenge us. Like, test it out. Challenge this. Yeah, yeah, this is all. I'm active on Facebook. Send me questions on Facebook. I am eager to to uh, answer questions. I, I'm still looking for the hole in the theory. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it is quite point. In fact, like like you've pointed out, the scholarship of, of McDonald and so many others, or the scholar I pointed out, Robin Faith Walsh. Yes. Scholars are getting to the point. And where McDonald's we recently came out and said that he thinks there's a connection between the Julius Caesar Augustus son of God thing and the uh, gospel writers implementing this type of deification into Jesus. He said that too. This is a guy who's a professor of uh, of Ivy League schools with 
I don't want to. He he would. I think he would stop short of saying that the Roman government had any role in this. I I don't want to impute too much to him. No, I'm just saying. I'm he among other scholars. Here's what I'm getting at: two important things. Christianity is heavily Hellenized, heavily influenced. Yes. I may not even agree with every parallel he has either. Well, the reason why I'm saying this. The reason why I'm saying this is because if you you can take a little bit from McDonald, a little bit from Walsh, a little bit from this person, and you put it all together, you can get valiant. Like it's you have everything Let me put it this way. It's getting harder and harder. It's get, I think it's getting harder and harder for serious scholars to deny that it was the highest elites in the Roman Empire, Jewish elites, those who probably worked closely with the Roman government, the very Jewish elites like Josephus, or the family of Philo, or the Herodians, who we know were very close to the Flavians, who we know were using the Jewish religion for their propagandistic purposes. Uh, it, it is these sorts of people that really could be only the only suspects behind and, the New Testament. And, people like and if you're a, and if if someone's watching this who's like a devout Talmudic practicing rabbinic Jew, well, you might make the case that these are traitors. And in a way, you're right. Josephus uh, was a traitor. We're not yep. saying we're not saying that it was the rabbinic fo- following Jews of the te- of the Torah who did this. We're saying that it was the ones that fell off, like Josephus, right. the traitors who did this. And it's important to realize that initially, this this literature and this missionary activity was not aimed at the empire as a whole. Back in the first and second centuries, it was targeted to Jews and right. those in danger of being converted to Judaism. It yeah, wasn't meant was, to be this the was religion to replace Eastern, right. Eastern, Eastern Roman Empire for right. Israel, right. maybe some parts of Egypt, maybe some parts of Syria. That's probably why it's in Greek, not Hebrew. So it's not just Jerusalem, but it's definitely for the Eastern Roman Empire. The entire Eastern Roman Empire where Koine Greek was already the lingua franca. Everyone spoke Koine Greek. You know, Romans in Rome, educated Romans would learn Greek because if you're going to go anywhere east, you're speaking Greek. Right, which is why you get a letter to the Hebrews from Paul. Like you get all these like, or James or whatever. You get all these like letter toward, it's like towards them. You know what I mean? Not from them, but towards them. Letter so, to the Galatians. And it's to a community at large, which is interesting, right? It's meant right, to be read by a community. Yeah, that's such a good point. Such a good and yeah. he's and he's and it, these are uh, and if there's the indication from the letters is any is in is true paul is talking to a mixed group yeah. both of jews and gentiles gentiles well, who are epistle, interested the epistle style is is very sim- similar to the genre that you get from from the greek philosophers like uh like the stoics they wrote epistles with a genre just like those those biographies are a genre in those epistles you can tell they're not they're they're not private letters they're injected with philosophy they are for the public for they are polemical and meant to be read out loud to groups right absolutely and no uh, question definitely the, the major objection to this of course is well wait a minute didn't the romans persecute the Christians didn't they feed them to the lions and so forth? There, there's precious little evidence that uh, our New Testament Christians were ever persecuted much by Romans. Right. We have very little evidence. In fact, we know that's, that's what I was saying in the beginning. I think there it's entirely possible that this really was a legitimate natural movement coming out of Judaism, especially when you read like Enoch and the Dead Sea Scrolls. You're seeing this whole entire messianic movement oh. happening. The dead, oh, the, the yeah. Kumar community. 
So what I'm what I what I'm what I'm proposing the to Adam ideas is that have been evolving in Judaism that were taken yeah, up. These are the Christians who were really brought into Rome and thrown into the lions. Though that's really happening. But we're talking about Pauline happening later on in the second century and this thousands this upon thousands of messianic Jews were crucified in the first two centuries. Right. Militant nationalist Torah Orthodox messianic Jews who fiercely believed their Messiah was coming. Right. That was your main Jewish messianic uh, uh, believer in those days, not our not our uh, bro-peace internationalist uh, uh, New Testament Christians. In fact, it turns the political message of the rebels on its head, but uses their own religion. You're not going to wipe out Judaism. You're not going to wipe out Messianic Judaism. The Romans knew that. Right. What, it needed to be, what needed to happen was a redirection of it in a more pro-Roman, Hellenized direction, a way that would allow Jews to get along with uh, the wider uh, Greco-Roman world. Hey, it makes sense to me. And um, if, uh, yeah, like I said, where can people find your books and your websites and all that stuff, pages? Go www.creatingchrist.com. <laughs> it's real simple. Well, uh, Creating Christ is available, of course, at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com. And as I say, I'm very active on Facebook where we have yeah, a you know, Roman, Providence Roman Providence Facebook. Looked it up on Facebook. It'll pop right up. And you have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained true gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over you. Jesus.